This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, just three average Joes, but three cover stories of national magazines this week that are raising eyebrows. First, you've got to take note of the Politico magazine cover story of their second print issue, Joe Biden in Winter. By the great Glenn Thrush, Glenn gets inside Joe's head in a way that few writers can't, showing Biden's timeless charm and presidential ambition, but flying headlong into the reality of his own age, some aging West Wing relationships, and political competition he may face if he seeks a promotion from the voters in 2016. We'll try and do more on that next week. But first, this week, Joe Pompeo of Capitol New York has the cover story of Capitol's March issue, The Devil Does Fidei, all about Condé Nast's move to the spanking new One World Trade Center and the transformation of downtown Manhattan. For the last four years, my office in Lower Manhattan has overlooked the rebuilding of the World Trade Center. I've seen it go from an enshrined hole in the ground to the final stages of commercial rebirth, with Condé Nast at the leading edge of revitalization, and Joe Pompeo has the story. He'll join us in a minute. Then, Joe Hagan blew us away Sunday night with New York Magazine, went live with its cover story, I Give Up, by Alec Baldwin, as told to Mr. Hagan. An amazing read and an amazingly complex story to write in the as-told-to form. I can unabashedly say I'm a big fan of Baldwin when his show, while this show predated Alex Here's the Thing podcast from WNYC, his style of thoughtful conversation is one that I've tried to emulate on polyoptics. Baldwin's plight in 2013 is, I think, the quintessential polyoptics story of recent history. As Baldwin says in the piece, in the new media culture, anything good you do is tossed into a pit and you're measured by who you are on your worst day. We'll talk to Joe Hagan about the journey that resulted in goodbye public life at the bottom of the hour. But first, joining me here in the studio, it's Joe Pompeo, who covers media for Capital New York, previously with Yahoo News, Business Insider, and the New York Observer. Joe, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, great piece this week, and I want to get to Downtown Goes Glossy in a minute. But first, cover some of the things that have been uh, on your feed in recent days since that story went live. I first want to focus around the other side of the world in Egypt, the story of Peter Gresti, the Al Jazeera journalist still detained by Egyptian authorities. Hear a little bit of a cut from reporting over there and get the local take on that. Video has emerged of the arrest of Australian journalist Peter Grester and his Al Jazeera colleagues in their Cairo hotel room. Government officers arrested the group, accusing the broadcasting team of associating with the banned Muslim Brotherhood. The obviously concerned journalist asks for help as his arrest takes place. I need to show me anything of You can read Arabic? Arabic. You can read Arabic or Then find someone who can interpret for me. Okay. Al Jazeera describes the release of the video footage as a propaganda campaign by the Egyptian government. The award-winning correspondent and Egyptian-Canadian Mohamed Fahmy's interrogation has been broadcast in the footage, along with images of their television equipment backed by a vivid musical backdrop. Joe Pompeo, we sometimes take for granted the great risks that journalists take covering stories abroad. 
Al Jazeera trying to make a major play into the North American market, now occupying real real estate in New York and much more of a presence here in the U.S. How are you covering this story from the local perspective? I really only jumped into this uh, yesterday. What we've what we've seen is a lot of uh, concern from the journalistic community um, worldwide, and obviously uh, here in New York, where there are a lot of journalists. Um, the Columbia Journalism School yesterday, there are uh, about more than 30 professors and the dean of the Columbia Journalism School, Steve Call, who's also a uh, staff writer at The New Yorker, um, issued a letter to the acting president of, of Egypt uh, you know, condemning these, uh, the, these arrests and these, these uh, dubious charges against uh, these three um, Al Jazeera English journalists, as well as um, some of their colleagues from the Arabic channel. Um, and this letter, you know, this is largely symbolic, but, uh, you know, they sent this to the president um, saying, you know, uh, you know, this this is a criminalizing journalism. Journalism is not terrorism. Uh, we're calling for the immediate release uh, of these journalists. And, you know, aside, this is sort of um, just one of the, uh, you know, gestures we're, we're seeing from, from the journalistic community worldwide uh, to sort of raise awareness about about this issue. There's also, I believe, like a Twitter hashtag people have been using to call attention to this. There's been a lot of uh, coverage uh, of this in recent recent days over the past month, um, probably has intensified a bit. The Committee to Protect Journalists, which is also based here in New York, has also issued a statement uh, condemning these arrests and calling for the release of these journalists. I think their Al Jazeera has also called for an, an international uh, day of awareness or, or action around this issue. So, you know, from here in New York, it's, um, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of, you know, co- to cover this because there is uh, uh, some action happening on the ground here, but it's certainly, um, you know, you can cannot really understand what it must be like to, you know, be in a cell under these conditions and be very, um, I'd imagine, alarmed uh, you know, in halfway across the world about, you know, what's going to happen? What's the outcome of this going to be? Will we, will we be released? Um, will any of this pressure, will any of these sort of symbolic statements, um, you know, have an effect? From your usual beat covering media in this town, uh, is it difficult to get your arms around a story that really has uh, most of the action happening 5,000 miles away? It depends. In a case like this, I just, I feel like, um, you know, r- reporting on something like this, you're really just sort of relying on statements that organizations are putting out. Um, maybe you can talk to some to some experts, but I, I think it's something that's very important uh, for for uh, you know not just journalists, for everyone to be aware of. So it's the kind of it's precisely the type of story that I'm most inclined to want to uh, you know share on my Facebook feed. So um, you know, people that are are not in uh, sort of my um, network of of media colleagues. Uh, who, who might not follow this sort of thing might, you know, be become aware of it. Um, so, you know, it's it's not difficult because there are so many mechanisms now for for organizations and uh, to get their to get their message out and to have journalists pick up on it. Um, and I think that's uh, you, you know, in a situation like this, that's that's useful and it's important. Now, getting hyper local, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, you got your start uh, at the New York Observer before. After doing some work uh, in your home state of New Jersey, you were one of the last hires by Peter Kaplan, the famous editor who passed away recently, who was such an outpouring of support about those who've had a chance to work for and with Peter. Uh, And Peter left The Observer shortly after you arrived. And just this week, Joe Pompeo, a big story emerges from The Observer 
through under-editor Ken Curson and the, and the two writers that he put on it about Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. And uh, obviously the, the questions about the relationship between Donald Trump and his son-in-law, the publisher of The Observer, Jared Kushner. Now, retweets never imply endorsements, but you've been retweeting some pretty harsh stuff aimed toward The Observer. What did you make of this story? There's a lot of a lot of scrutiny on this story, and um, you know, for for good reason. It's very hard to ignore the fact um, that the the owner of this newspaper's uh, father-in-law is Donald Trump, and he he has an integral role um, in this story. And and he himself has said that there is, um, you know, a, a, there's a sort of a, a hit piece that some publications working on that is is going to vindicate me. I, I, it's you know, I think uh, I will I'll refrain from you know giving my opinion on the story itself. Um, but you know, what I can say is that I think that, um, a lot of the criticisms are not surprising. I think the intense interest in this is not surprising, not only from the community of observer alumni, but, um, uh, you know, the media here in general. And you have seen, um, you know, some, uh, some people on Twitter who have sort of come out and suggested, you know, that, um, things like this have maybe happened, uh, before at, at the New York Observer, um, a few people have 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 tweeted publicly at this point saying um, Elizabeth Spires, who is the uh, an, a former editor of the Observer, tweeted um, in response to to someone that it would not be reckless to uh, to suggest that there you know uh, could be pressure from the the top of the management of the Observer to pursue certain stories. Well, and, I mean, the way the Times, New York Times, talked about the story that Ken. Also in New Jersey, at Ken Curson actually found a guy working at the ice cream parlor who is not does not have deep uh, journalistic chops. Said, "Will you write this story about Attorney General Schneiderman? He's a bad guy." I mean, do you take do you take the New York Times uh, at face value the way that story seemed to develop through edit, the editorial process of the Observer? I think that I think BuzzFeed had also reported that detail. Um, I think it's true. I don't think Ken publicly has disputed that detail. What he has disputed. Um, you know, he said, I do not recall characterizing this as a negative story. Um, and he's also said, you know, the Observer has this history of uh, of cultivating new, fresh talent. Right. At the same time, this is a very delicate, high profile sort of piece. Certainly um, when I worked at the paper, um, what I can say is I don't think that uh, this story would have appeared, certainly not in this form. And I certainly don't think they would have approached someone um, who had never written or, or, or really had experience reporting in this realm well, we'll go who worked back, at an ice cream shop. Well, go back to those days when you first started The Observer. Kaplan had been there for many years. His imprint was all over it. It was a breeding ground of the best journalists. What was it like for you to get your first start doing researching, editing, fact-checking at a place that had such a wonderful reputation and was such a good read for New Yorkers. Yeah, you know, before that in my career, I had worked for sort of these small newspapers that no, no one would have would have heard of. And I got um, to experience very early on, uh, you know, sort of working with editors who are really driving you to, to report. But I was never at a level of sophistication or expertise that was, was satisfying. And, and working for The Observer and being in a newsroom um, that was had a very you know sort of familial atmosphere and had incredible editors that really really did uh, work closely with the staff and um, to have someone like Peter at the helm who you know was was so nurturing of of talent of reporters and editors there who really uh, you know e- each week um, you know each week this, this paper was a product of of his brain and you know that I, I didn't really have um, 
you know, such a close relationship with, with him, as, certainly not as some of my former colleagues did, but just being in those editorial meetings uh, every week where people were pitching stories to Peter and you could see how these um, kernels of ideas would, would you know, something could would go from a little kernel of an idea in an editorial meeting that ed- editors, you could just see their blood boiling about it. And then you'd see that over the week, you know, become the cover story the next week. And it was a really special thing. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, it will probably be one of the best, most fun jobs uh, I ever had. And Peter was you know, a fantastic guy and very, um, you know, incredibly, uh, you know, um, like I said, nurturing of, of his reporters. And it was, you know, a great, a great place to work at that point in time. Joe Pompeo of Capital New York, we're talking to uh, today on Polyoptics. No shortage of major media stories already in 2014. One of them involved the corporate parent of the Huffington Post, AOL. Uh, their CEO, Tim Armstrong, talked about the finances of the company, both in the press and in a, a town hall with employees after that. I want to hear a little bit of the coverage uh, that came in the press and then have you talk about how you covered the story. As a CEO and as a management team, we had to decide, do we pass the $7.1 million of Obamacare uh, cost to our employees or do we, we try to eat as much of that as possible and cut other benefits? And for employees that are leaving to go to other employers, uh, not matching those programs was probably the last thing on the list for us in terms of employee benefits uh, that we wanted to keep. And I have a town hall meeting today with all the employees. I'm going to bring this subject up and talk about it. Joe Pompeo, what happened at that town hall? Uh, so I got a tip. We, uh, we broke this. Uh, we broke the aspect of this story that um, pertained to this, this now infamous comment of um, distressed babies. And I had a source uh, called me up. And said, you know, we just had this town hall meeting, um, which uh, discussed some of the um, issues about our 401k plans that that Tim Armstrong had addressed earlier in the day on CNBC. But he said something in this meeting that went a little farther uh, than this notion that um, Obamacare was perhaps to blame. And he said at at first, uh, my source told me that he had sort of, um, you know, attributed uh, the scaling back of these 401k plans to two um, employees who had had uh, distressed pregnancies. Um, and I said, well, you know, do you remember verbatim what, what um, he said? And uh, the source was able to provide uh, a, a portion of a transcript um, in which he, he made this now very controversial and very infamous comment um, that, we, you know, I think the, the spirit of his remark was to say, um, you know, we, we take care of our employees um, and these, these two employees uh, who had distressed babies, uh, you know, we paid $1 million each for their care, but it definitely um, uh, was sort of a misfire on, yeah. on his part. Um, so we were, so we reported this, um, we, you know, we contacted um, AOL to give them a heads up and see if they had comment, which they did not at the time. And it went pretty um, instantly viral and definitely blew up more than uh, we, we expected it. We knew it would there would be a lot of interest in this um, because it was, you know, seen as a very inappropriate uh, remark. But, you know, we didn't expect that it would blow up to the level of, you know, uh, the, the Today Show and, uh, you know, all the cable networks. Um, and, you know, AOL, there's been a, there has been a lot of fallout over this remark. I believe they've, you know, had to hire, uh, retain the crisis uh, PR firm to help manage some of As we always and, do in situations like that yeah. coming from the corporate sector. But that's really where the, the story started is there was employees um, who had, had listened into this this town hall uh, company wide sort of conference call, who were you know very taken aback by these remarks um, and just felt that they were inappropriate and felt that um, this is something that that uh, you know they wanted people to be aware of. 
Now, uh, when we were talking a little bit before the show started, I made the remark, having sort of followed you now for a couple of weeks, that you are a prolific writer of what is happening on the New York media beat, and you can count on a couple stories a day sometimes from Joe Pompeo. But what I was struck by earlier this week, because I'm also a reader of uh, the new Capital Playbook uh, that's recently come out as a result of Politico's uh, ownership of Capital New York, is your long-form piece in uh, Capital Magazine, Downtown Goes Glossy. Uh, how did you get turned on to this story? It's a little bit off the beaten path for the things that you cover. So this is uh, this is a new this is for our new this is the second issue of our new monthly magazine at Capital. We're a digital first website. We've recently started a print uh, component, and these print issues. The idea is that they're themes. So this issue, in fact, is the real estate issue. Um, and you know, my my editor, the editors were interested in doing something on the relationship uh, between media and developers. We didn't quite know what the story would be. And I sort of began reporting and feeling things out. And it became apparent that uh, at this point in time, you know, it's been a few years now since Condé Nast uh, has has inked this historic lease to be the anchor tenant of One World Trade Center. Um, what hadn't really been noted was that, okay, it's January 1st of 2014. They've actually finally taken possession of their floors. They're starting to move in. Finally, this is sort of becoming a reality. And I've watched this building go up floor by floor by floor over the last yeah, few years. Yeah, so it's sort of actually, it just seems like, um, you know, given that sort of uh, uh, urgency of the moment, it seemed like it would be good to really focus on uh, in on Condé Nast. At first, we were also looking, uh, you, you know, at the, uh, the Hudson Yards redevelopment project, uh, which the related companies um, are developing. The, the One World Trade Center, as you know, is a joint development between the Durst organization and the Port Authority. Um, and, uh, you know, at the Hudson Yards, Time Warner is going to be moving there, be the anchor tenant of that development. Um, and what, what struck us, um, you know, from a bigger picture standpoint, I was talking to some, you know, urban planning uh, type experts, and they said, you know, this is a shift that um, media companies, as opposed to banks, uh, are really at the center of the two biggest development projects in New York City, um, is this sort of something of a sea change? So that kind of gave us the bigger picture. But we thought that, um, you know, Condé Nast is, uh, you know, there are a few media companies that have this sort of halo around them that Condé Nast does. There's a very strong attachment yeah. to celebrity and so much mystique in this company and so much iconography um, that uh, we thought it'd be good to really try to figure out where they're at with this move. What does this mean for employees? Um, you know, what is the process of them moving into this building that's now starting to sort of actually uh, happen, gain some steam? And also, what does this mean for uh, the neighborhood yeah. once they move in? I want to get to that in a second, starting with maybe a little bit of a clip from CNN about uh, the tour of One World Trade Center as it's in the final stages of construction. The developers of One World Trade Center are saving the top three floors for an observation deck, complete with food, drinks, and a small theater. We're on the 102nd floor of uh, One World Trade Center. It's the highest occupied floor in the building. It will be uh, the observation deck, uh, open to the public. This floor is a 360-degree unobstructed view of the entire metropolitan region. The building is by no means finished. In fact, there is still some heavy construction going on in some areas. But much of One World Trade Center has started to take form, and it isn't hard to imagine what the finished building will look like when it opens later this year. Joe Pompeo, did the Durst organization and the Port Authority roll out the red carpet for you? Also, did Condé Nast, were they helpful? Uh, well, to start, Condé Nast, um, you know, they, they declined to discuss, uh, uh, declined to, to, you know, be interviewed for, for this piece. Um, I think 
this is probably, they're probably still very early on in the process um, and maybe are not keen on some of these, we're not keen on some of these details getting yeah. out just yet that maybe hadn't been commuted, communicated to some employees even by the time I started reporting. Um, so, I, you know, I, I had to rely on my own sources in terms of um Did you at least get Condé a tour Nest. of the building? Yeah, but, but so Condé Nast, I did not get a tour of, since Condé Nast has taken possession of their floors, which is the 20th through the 44th floors, um, you they would you'd have to get permission from them to be to be shown any of those floors and they they did not give that permission. Uh, but the Durst organization and, and in that CNN clip that was who you heard uh, was uh, Jordan Barowitz, who's the director of external affairs, and he did take me on a tour. I wouldn't say the red carpet was rolled out. It's probably the same tour that any prospective tenants or certainly the other other reporters, the many reporters who have who have seen the space were given. Um, but it really you know the red carpet really is the experience of going up to the sixty third floor of the tallest building in America, which has just sweeping panoramic 360 degree views um, and just like just taking it, taking it in. It really is an incredible, um, it really is an incredible view of, of, you know, it seems like you could see the whole world from up there. And But you had to write a story about this iconic media organization run by Charles Townsend with people like Greg and Carter and Anna Wintour and all of their magazines and titles and staffs. And think about the demographics of where they all live. And uh, a lot of them have moved to Brooklyn. And you look at the subway transit map and you see that, uh, boy, you know, the downtown World Trade Center uh, transit hub really is a perfect mix between Midtown, Upper West, Upper East, and the burgeoning populations of Brooklyn where so many of the creatives are living. So I want to hear a little bit about from Charles Townsend, the uh, CEO of Condé Nast, talking about where the media business is going. And then tell me how you got what you got from inside Condé Nast. Mm -hmm. When this economy recovers, the print business is going to be on fire. And that's the input that we're getting from the advertising community. Too many people went too far into digital. And I get this from American Express. I get it from somebody the other day, John. Who did I get this from, uh, uh, you know, one after another after another, the big players say, we went too far this way, we're coming back, and print is part of what their mix is. It only needs to be part of the mix, right? Doesn't need to exclude anything else, just needs to be part of the mix. So Cy Newhouse, Charles Townsend, very bullish on the media business, certainly with the major bet that they've made uh, on these 20-some-odd floors of One World Trade, a plan that re- really they were putting in place very quickly after they moved into Five World Trade Center, according to your reporting. To four times square. Four times square, right. Uh, and so what were you able to get from sources about how they plan to blow this space out? So I, t- you know, I called uh, a number of sources inside the company uh, just to try to get a sense of what had been communicated uh, to employees there already, which um, was, was a, fair, a fair amount. So for instance... Um, you know, we know that they, they, for instance, have a outside project management firm managing this whole move. They have only very recently uh, confirmed we are going to um, begin moving employees in November of 2014. I think a lot of people had, had been saying 2015 is when they would start. Early reports had said 2014 sometime general. So this is the first time uh, we've confirmed that they'll begin moving in this coming November and they will conclude the move by uh, the first quarter of the 2015, um, we're starting to learn about what titles will be placed on what floors. Um, for instance, uh, 
you know, Vogue, we know will be on 25. They'll have a whole floor. Other books will be shacking up together um, on floor 39. Uh, we know that Wired's New York Bureau and, and details. Um, we're starting to have a sense of, you know, what some of the grandeur of the spaces. What are the amenities like. going to involve? There's two amenity floors. These are on floors 34 and 35, and they're connected. This is also sort of the um, central reception area for 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 all of the um, all of the all of the companies, all, all of the titles that are there. And uh, these two floors are are connected by a very uh, beautiful looking spiral staircase. There's a library. There's going to be an auditorium, um, a cafeteria, obviously, which uh, perhaps might not be as Stunning as Frank Gehry's famous four times square Condé Nast cafeteria, but will we'll nonetheless on the 35th floor again have these th- amazing 360 degree views. How are they going to um, get all the cooking fumes out of that cafeteria? Cooking fumes. This is something that had been reported previously, uh, but apparently it, when when they were negotiating um, the lease, uh, at some point they had to the the architect David Childs had to make a concession. Uh, to put some exhaust ducts, install some exhaust ducts on the exterior, which I believe was seen as a compromise uh, to the zone. You can imagine Child's not very happy about that. Perhaps perhaps not. I I, I can't speak for him, obviously. Um, But there's all sorts of other details to consider, not just about uh, what the space is going to look like, but the, you know, the very um, intense security that that will be in this space. I talked to people who said, you know, there's editors who are concerned about deliveries. There is is more than, I was told, there is more than... uh, there's tens and thousands of racks of clothing alone that are delivered every year uh, to titles like Vogue and Vanity Fair um, uh, and Details and GQ. Um, so trucks getting in and out. For example, there's an interim loading dock, which will serve uh, as the entry point for deliveries uh, coming in via truck until the permanent loading dock is constructed. Um, I believe this was $10 million, and it's going to feature a full truck scanner. So every truck that comes in with a delivery Massive X-ray. will be scanned. Um, every delivery that comes in a package will go down to the basement. I was told, uh, you know, so one source kind of snickered and said some editors are concerned about flowers. Right. Can, you, can you put these through a, uh, a, a scanning Radioactive machine? Radioactive roses. Yeah. So um, obviously when anyone takes the courageous plunge to uh, reoccupy hallowed ground and the rebuilding of the World Trade Center site and One World Trade Center, they, they've got to have some thoughts about their comfortable position in Times Square and moving into this place that is so well known for its tragic history. What's the view inside Condé Nast about people sort of content in this office space? I think it's a mixed view uh, in, in terms of uh, the prospect of moving or the reality to, uh, of moving to One World Trade Center. Um, you know, I, I was told that you know some people are very uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, there's there's the the sense that people might view this as another a place where you know that could be a target in the future. Um, some people, uh, you know, see this as I'm going to be working at this site of this catastrophic terrorist attack, um, which has changed the world. And I talked to one person who uh, was an employee who had gone up, who has been up to uh, the Condé Nast floors, and said, you know, looking to, when you they're very clear. Um, view of the of the 9-11 memorial um, and I know that Cy Newhouse when he visited for the first time was was very much focusing looking down on this spot and this person said to me you know it was sobering and you have to think um, you know this is where you're going to be working every day it is sort of a constant reminder of what what happened here and, and thousands you know this is a site where thousands of, of people died um, 
And you, you can imagine there are probably a lot of people who have, have some level of discomfort with that. At the same time, I've, I was told there's lots of people who are excited about this because it is a very um, uh, you know, convenient spot. Uh, it, does, it is an appealing place to work geographically. Certainly yeah. these views really are, I can't emphasize how um, amazing they are. And, you know, so I think it's, I think it's a mixed bag. And this is a, a company that I'm told has 3,500 people in its New York workforce. So you're not going to find right. one, one, one consistent view among all of them. But. And speaking for myself as a person who's worked in, right next to that site for four years, I will certainly look forward to seeing uh, all of the various uh, staffers and models and other folks that uh, are related to the Condé Nast books coming in and out of the building mm-hmm. and enjoying the, the great food amenities that are going to become part of Brookfield Place and generally seeing downtown transformed from a place of finance and banking to a place of media and entertainment. And that's one of the other interesting things is that we are sort of seeing uh, a little bit, uh, you know, some uh, some movement of media companies downtown. Uh, in addition to, I mean, Condé Nast is sort of the crown jewel of this, but um, over the past few years, I think there are since 2011, uh, something like 15 uh, media companies that have committed to move downtown. You'll have Condé Nast, you have some smaller brands uh, nearby at Seven World Trade Center, like Fast Company Magazine yeah. and Inc. Magazine. Um, a little closer to the financial district, you have you have Newsweek at Seven Hanover Square. You have the Daily News at Four New York Plaza, as well as American Media, which uh, owns the National Enquirer and, and Star Magazine. There are uh, murmurs that uh, Time Inc. is looking to possibly relocate uh, here. Bloomberg reported that they are have looked had discussions with Seven World Trade Center, Brookfield Place. Um, for, I'm sorry, Four World Trade Center and Brookfield Place. So. You're seeing um, a, a lot more of a sense that this could become a place that is a little bit more of a media power center, whereas you know we've always looked at Midtown being a, the, the big you know power center of media in New York. Um, with Condé Nast moving out, with, with Time Warner moving out, possibly with Time Inc. moving out, that, that is a big change. Joe Pompeo, he covers the media beat for Capital New York with the cover story, in the Capital Magazine this month in March, Downtown Goes Glossy, all about uh, Condé Nast's move to downtown and the transformation of Lower Manhattan. Joe, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks so much for having me. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. Hi, I'm Julie Mason from Sirius XM's POTUS, the channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. In our Leading Ladies series, we're joined by some of the most innovative and influential women in America. Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Andrea Mitchell. Former Senator Olympia Snow. Coming up, I'm joined by House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. We'll talk about her groundbreaking career, life, and role models. Plus, questions from our live audience. A special Leading Ladies with Nancy Pelosi. Tuesday at 5 p.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS 124. Or listen on the Sirius XM app. As I said at the top of the show, Joe Hagan blew us away Sunday night when New York Magazine went live with its cover story, I Give Up, by Alec Baldwin, as told to Mr. Hagan. An amazing read and an amazingly complex story to write in the as-told-to form. I can unabashedly say I'm a big fan of Baldwin's when his show, uh, Here's the Thing, was on. I've absolutely used it as a idea for the way I conduct these conversations thoughtful, long form. And to watch Alec uh, implode over 2013, um, I was, I, my heart bled for him in many ways. And then to see this story come out, I got to tell you, Joe Hagan, um, that I looked at a tweet at about two in the morning and I 
I read the story in full before I realized it was in, in the as told to form. And, uh, and it wasn't until I got the, to the office the next morning that everyone, all the tweets started coming in about your contribution and the way this worked. But congratulations on an amazing piece. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. How did it come about for you? Well, you know, it's not something I sought. It was a very unusual situation, the way this came together. I mean, um, I got a call about a month ago from um, a uh, a friend of mine who's a, a journalist uh, and who said, hey, uh, somebody I know is interested in writing a book on the media, and they're looking for somebody to partner with on that. I'd, I'd written some books about the media in the past, or I mean, sorry, uh, stories about the media. And uh, he said, "The guy, it's Alec Baldwin. And I said, well, geez, I don't know about that, but why don't you send him my way and I'll talk to him. And we began to have a conversation. He's telling me his problems. You know, his, he has a critique of the media that he's trying to uh, get across because he feels like something has changed in the media such that his career has been tarnished. You know, the paparazzi and the liberal media has let him down. MSNBC has let him down. He's unhappy with just the way things are going. And so I said, well, why don't we do a story in New York Magazine and you tell your own story in your own voice and I'll help you kind of craft that. And so he got into it. He was into it. And um, it really was a collaboration in many ways as we, you know, I I said uh, we got together for lunch um, for a couple hours and he just got it all off his chest. And um, then I kind of turned around and said, well, let's look at what kind of story you're telling here and see how we can organize it. Let's remind ourselves, Joe Hagan, about the Alec Baldwin that so many of us uh, originally fell in love with early in his career, that great speech from Glengarry Glen Ross. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize, a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You've got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Joe Hagan, was that the level of uh, self-confidence that you found Alec Baldwin with at the Century Club? Uh, well... Maybe like, uh, you know, with a little bit of more Willie Loman in there than he'd probably like. Um, you know, he's, um, I think what the person I met, uh, is somebody like that same character. Um, maybe after he's had a, a, a bout of self doubt, which is hard to imagine, I suppose. But, you know, I think, um, what I saw was, uh, Alex Baldwin sort of, um, you know, struggling to understand what had happened to him, you know, like trying to understand how it had come to this. And, uh, you know, he's got, he's got a couple of different parts to his personality. You know, he's very intelligent and kind of erudite guy, uh, up on politics and, uh, very well-spoken and on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he's got the side of him. That's probably something like that character who's got a lot of passion, right? And, uh, who could be volatile at times. He would, and he was, he was very open about that, about how he reacts very badly to, you know, paparazzi and people coming around him and his family and so forth. So, and he, so he has these two sides of him that are trying to kind of wrestle. And I felt like the piece kind of captures some of that, you know, he's both kind of angry and, uh, you know, 
put out by what's happened to him, but he's also thoughtful, right? Um, and uh, that's why I thought that form was actually so useful, is uh, you kind of get to see him talk in action, kind of struggling with those, those uh, you know, his feelings. I've followed him on Twitter for a long time, and there are parts of his, his uh, the last few years in which he's vociferous and very politically opinionated and very out there with his tweets. And then after yeah. a lot of this blew up, I think he really receded, and you started to see him tweeting out pictures of his uh, idle time in Hawaii with his family, almost a screw you, New York, I'm I'm out here in the beach, and, and I've left you yeah. all behind. So I could almost see this story coming in a way. He talks, uh, Joe uh, Hagan, about the charmed New York life that he had lived and and the way he had built up his his stature in the city and I want to hear a little bit of sort of the way he engaged with the local arts uh, talking about the New York Film Philharmonic. If you think you might like to see even a couple of concerts next season, you'd be crazy not to subscribe. You'll get the very best seats, the best price, and you can switch your tickets for free if there's ever a schedule conflict. So go ahead, pick your favorite concerts and order today. I love going to the New York Philharmonic. And you will, too. Joe, I mean, Alec so fit into this milieu, and yet he, he didn't in a way when he came in and out of his apartment on 10th Street. Uh, what, yeah. what, was the, what was Alec Baldwin when things were really working well for him in the last few years? Well, listen, when he was on 30 Rock, he felt like he was at the top of the world. Now, you want to have an intellectual argument? Fine. But I should warn you, I went to Princeton. You're a match. No, I'm not. Then where are you going to get a kidney from? I don't know, but I have the entire liberal media establishment at my disposal. The same manipulation machine that got people to vote for Barack Obama and donate all that money after rainstorm Katrina. Why are you wearing a tux? It's after six. What am I, a farmer? He had won all these prizes, and he had a lot going for him. He was able to, you know, he did these commercials for Capital One uh, credit cards, and he was donating all that money to charity. He had he was involved in the classical music and in the arts, and he had these dreams of uh, running for mayor. And so he really, you know, his self-image uh, was one that was very different from the one that you would see on TMZ, right? And, but these two versions of Alec Baldwin uh, basically crashed into one another. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, in, he kind of has a nostalgic view of, of the city, you know, he sees he the one that he wants to live in that he maybe once lived in is one where he felt like he had his privacy on the streets. Um, everyone, everyone was, gets their five feet. Everybody gets their five feet, and if they do say something to, they're like, "Hey, loved you in streetcar or whatever," and then they keep walking on by. Right? It's the age before camera phones, and uh, you know when people just doing an autograph was you know actually had some value of some kind. But now it's all about pictures. Now it's about you know, and with Twitter and the the world online, it's all about, uh, you know, controversy and people giving you the thumbs up or the thumbs down. He talks about the sort of digital Roman Coliseum sort of vibe that he has to live in. And, um, you know, that's not the kind of uh, romantic uh, Emerald City that he thought he was living in, uh, in the past, at least. So, um, and that's what he's struggling with. And now he feels like he can't, cope with it anymore because it's actually had some serious consequences, right? It's hurt his career and made him, uh, put him in a position of having to, um, you know, apologize to people all the time, and, you know, gay people. And in one case, you know, he was accused of using a racial epithet and had to apologize to Arthur Ashe's widow, or at least, you know, try to tell her what was happening, even though he didn't, 
he says he didn't say the things that he said. But um, in any case, you know, uh, he no longer feels like New York is the place that he can uh, call home. He says to you uh, in one part of the story, in the new media culture, anything good you do is tossed into a pit and you're measured by who you are on the worst day. And I have to tell you, Joe Hagan, that, uh, you know, this show is about polyoptics. It's about the optics of politics and image. But I had not spent much time actually uh, clicking through the Internet and watching some of these TMZ pieces that get put up, especially when when maybe TMZ and Mr. Levin consider themselves uh, having a soft target in their lenses. And I want to hear just a little bit of one um, that was made after he went on the street uh, and Alec Baldwin was captured in their lenses and, and this vibe in the TMZ newsroom and get your reaction to it. So after the fight, Alec Baldwin's shuffling away and our guy goes up to him and says, Alec, not the incident that happened today. Anything you can say? He spits on the street like that's his response. Maybe he had a mouthful of booby juice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, Joe Hagan, you must have watched some of these things doing this piece, but yeah. I hadn't seen TMZ like this. What if I were Alec Baldwin? I'd be pretty, pretty pissed off too. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, they uh, they are they treat him like a rodeo clown. You know what I mean? Like, like he's some guy that they somehow uh, corralled into their little you know carnival esque tabloid theater, and they're you know kicking him around. And, uh, you know, it's like there are certain kinds of celebrities who they decide are really vulnerable to their kind of um, coverage. And uh, he has played into that uh, to some degree in a way that he can't really avoid. And I think that's because he, you know, he has a, a volatile reaction to cameras getting in his face. And, you know, as one might have... But he, you know, he he takes it too far, and he basically said, um, you know, that he admitted in the piece. He admits that he, you know, maybe plays up to the cameras, you know, in a sort of sub- subconscious way, even when he doesn't want to. You know, he acts out when there's cameramen kind of harassing him. So, uh, you know, not a, not every other celebrity has this problem, um, but he seems to have one, and so there's some kind of um, chemistry that is not good between him and these in these tabloid uh, um, kind of places like TMZ. As he says, it's not the New York of uh, Ron Galella anymore. These people are, are on their motorbikes and bicycles and uh, right. really get totally in your face. But, you know, uh, Joe Hagan, the paparazzi were not Alec Baldwin's only problem in 2013. Uh, right. He had issues both on the stage and in television. I want to uh, hear a little bit of an interview that he did uh, with his new cast of The Orphans, uh, but have you tell me what happened before that. Yeah. The only issue is that this, for me, is a very uh, specific process with a very specific rhythm and a timing. And that was the only concern I had, was that, that we were going to go back and hit the refresh button, uh, you know, seven or eight days in, and that was the the, the, the only tough thing. But as I've said to people countless times, I said, we ended up doing the show with the people we were meant to do the show with. So I have no complaints at all. It's all good. It's all great. Joe, uh, Alec is not uh, shy in your piece about talking about his issues with Shia LaBeouf or the director, Mr. Sullivan. Right. Yeah, that that whole experience left him with a real uh, bad taste in his mouth. And, you know, this is the first sort of um, show or performance he's going to be doing post-30 Rock. You know, this is his idea to kind of like, you know, re-energize his theatrical chops by going on stage. He had big 
uh, he had a lot of high hopes for Dan Sullivan, this director, and he didn't know Shia LaBeouf at all. But it seems obvious that uh, these guys, again, um, they didn't like each other, I guess, from the get-go. And it was like an ego clash of some kind. And, um, you know, the way he describes it in the in the piece is that Shia LaBeouf was real... He, he describes him as having a jailhouse mentality, which I guess he's sort of a, you know, a loner who's going to learn his lines and comes in with a lot of intensity. And I guess uh, Alex sort of is a, more, operates differently and learns his lines on the fly. And this set up a whole um, kind of uh, philosophical uh, conflict that ultimately got resolved with Shia LaBeouf getting fired or, or at least leaving um, unhappily. He and, slash uh, you. He and you have this hilarious line uh, of Alec saying to Shia, "You realize the lines are written in a certain order, don't you?" Yes, right, right. Because he, Shia LaBeouf basically threatens that if he does, if Alec doesn't come back with his line at the right time, he's just going to keep talking. <laughs> right. So uh, it seems like it did. It went sour pretty quick, and then the uh, director was sort of trying to you know, mediate the whole thing, but not well. And then he ultimately says the director didn't end up liking the play or him. And so that just, everything went south. And, you know, it was also during this time that he had, uh, that Baldwin had one of his first kind of tabloid run-ins of recent vintage. And you can kind of sense that maybe, uh, you know, he's getting frustrated, right? So um, it's, uh, and, you know, I guess he's, he's in town doing a play, and the local tabloids begin to kind of, uh, he gets on their radar of, because of this Shia LaBeouf conflict, too. And I think that's when he starts having a lot more of these interactions. Yeah. Now, at the same time, he's having this opportunity to bring his Here's the Thing podcast to MSNBC. And as I said at the beginning of the show, I've listened to almost all of the Here's the Things. I think they are the best thing uh, on podcast. And Alec, if you're listening, just a huge shame that you're not uh, in the microphone anymore, but I want to hear a little bit of how he introduced each week because he had a difficult time making the translation from podcast in a studio with WNYC to on the air with MSNBC. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from WNYC Radio. My chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. So, Joe Hagan, uh, it would seem an easy translation to Friday night at 10 p.m. You could do that kind of quiet conversation at MSNBC, can't you? Well, you know, I don't know. From the get-go, you would have thought they would have had talked this out a lot before they would start putting something like this on the air, but apparently they didn't. But, you know, uh, you're, he's talking about something more along the lines of a Charlie Rose type show, I, would, I guess. You know, something that is expansive and quiet and doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. And, you know, it's, it's not like he's using, uh, you know, jump cutting to different segments and stuff. It was just going to be one long conversation. And you actually don't see anything like that on MSNBC currently. So it doesn't seem like it was an automatic fit into what they were doing. It was it was pretty novel, I guess, for MSNBC. Um, and apparently, uh, you know, it it generated again conflict between the people running MSNBC and Alec Baldwin fairly quickly. You know, he didn't get them, and they didn't uh, get him. 
and uh, it sort of just uh, went south from there. And then, you know, what ends up happening is that he has these tabloid run-ins and where he, you know, evidently, possibly, or allegedly, I guess I would say, said some, you know, anti, uh, anti-gay slurs or whatever, and this becomes kind of the excuse MSNBC uses to can him um, fairly quickly. So it was, uh, it was really kind of unfortunate all the way around because I agree with you that his radio podcast is great, and if there was a way to translate that on TV, it would it could be really wonderful, but maybe MSNBC wasn't the place to do it. You know, you said in some of your interviews that um, you tried to avoid either uh, sort of getting the Helsinki syndrome or, or becoming sort of part of his personality as he told you these stories. But but didn't his rant against Phil Griffin and Rachel Maddow and the way cable news is generally and the way MSNBC has sort of made itself as uh, strident on the left as Fox is in the right, as a, as a guy who's written about Matt Lauer and has focused and has spent so much time looking at the media business, did any of that really resonate with you, and did you come out on his side on any of this? You know, sure, yeah, to some degree, although I guess I'm more of a realist about it. I mean, the fact is, is that, uh, you know, he mentioned, like, uh, you know, some of the gossip columnists of old who used to be marginal figures, he was saying. But, um, you know, there's always been gossip on NBC News and and, and, and network television and cable television. Um, I guess there's it, here's the two things I would say. One, you have to, it's a little bit apples and oranges. Huffington Post is on the Internet, and that's something where you can actually make a, a real critique about that and say, well, listen, they are kind of like they need clicks, they need advertising, and so they kind of front with a lot of, you know, shallow tabloid type material. And then on the margins, or if you dig down in there, they have political talk. Right. It's it, it is supposed to be it's like left wing Huffington Post was created as a left wing uh, response to the Drudge Report. Right. But the other thing is that I think he was really uh, upset about is that things like that were on TMZ and, you know, at one time were not taken seriously or were not even considered uh, to be, you know, evidence of anything. Uh, you know, like the National Enquirer, for instance, you know, not everybody takes this seriously or believes what they write just because it's on the, you know, uh, on the grocery store stands or whatever. But now he gets caught on video on TMZ and it has this impact on his highbrow show that he's doing on MSNBC. And um, I think he's uh, partly sort of, you know, wondering how it is that there aren't any more, there aren't any fences there anymore between the lowbrow and the highbrow. And, you know, that's something that's upsetting him. So, Joe Hagan, you you struck up a relationship with Alec Baldwin through this. You started with a few off-the-record conversations, this long lunch at the Century Club, and then follow-up emails as he uh, worked with you to tweak the story and to add a lot, maybe detract some tiny bits. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, well, there's been this sort of social media sensation around the story since it came out on Sunday. Has uh, yeah. Mr. Baldwin been back in touch with his reaction? Um, y- yes, a little bit. Um, I can't really talk about everything that we've said because it's sort of confidential, but I would say that um, the the main thing is he feels like the response to it has proven his own point, which is that this sense of like people, how much kind of acidic 
hateful, you know, commentary that the internet kind of produces around the things he said. And, you know, there's just been a lot of negativity uh, towards his piece. Um, or let's put it this way, the negative stuff rises to the surface and gets attention. You know, there's plenty of people out there that actually support him and read what he re- what he said and understood what he said and kind of felt, you know, some sympathy for him. But there's quite a bit that hasn't. You read, I don't know if you read what Michelle Malkin uh, wrote in the National Review this week. It was really nasty stuff. I mean, she's just, you know, kind of pivoting off of what he did right. and uh, using it to make the most kind of outlandish, um, mean-spirited commentary she possibly can, and then and then she gets tons of attention for it. And this is actually kind of feeds right into what he's saying is wrong with everything. Is And I, I think a lot of people can sympathize that with, uh, with that, and I certainly can. I, I think there's some truth to it. You finish off your piece uh, basically saying that he's saying goodbye, public life, and then he gives yeah. this little caveat to saying, admittedly, I'm saying that in February 2014. Anything over yeah. the past week in reaction to suggest that uh, this is either a more confirmed view that he'll be behind a gated community in L.A. or back on 10th Street? Well, I haven't gotten any follow-up evidence that it's going to go one way or the other, but, um, you know, um, my thing is I uh, my only guess here is that um, if he uh, can figure out how to kind of not be addicted to carrying what everybody thinks and says. I mean, here's a guy that, you know, he when somebody attacks him on Twitter, he responds to it, you know, and he feels compelled to be out there in that public space, the very public space that he feels like has been hurting him. And so when he, his, the only way he'll be able to kind of fulfill what he's saying he'd like to do is if he can figure out how to live without um, constantly feeling the need to engage with it, right? And he, one of the things that we talked about is that if he's going to do movies, he'll be contracted to do interviews still. Um, And he has said that he would like to, he's trying to get it into his new movie contracts that he only has to talk about the movies and he'll do most of his emails, uh, sorry, his interviews through email. So, uh, you know, that's one way for him to kind of limit how much he's exposed. And But, you know, at the end of the day, he's an entertainer and he wants a, he wants a public. He wants an audience. So how, how he can kind of delineate that and define it, as, uh, that will be a process for him. And I, I think one of the things he told me in our interview that I thought was interesting is that he, he admitted that it, this is a process for him. It's, a, it's difficult. It was not easy for him to just say, okay, that's it. And, um, you know. Uh, obviously he feels like he's trying to create some closure and this whole article is some people think it's ironic that he had to come out with a whole article about it in order to like end it. Right. But in some way he's trying to, uh, you know, break up with this girlfriend that is the public and, uh, that's, it's a whole process for him. So whether he can, you know, never come back, that's another question. I don't know. We will see how the breakup and divorce goes or whether there's a reconciliation. Joe Hagan, right. uh, to- uh, Alec Baldwin, goodbye public life, as told to Joe Hagan, an amazing read in New York Magazine. You can also see some of Joe's great work over the past few months, his piece on uh, Charlie Rich in um, Oxford, America, and his piece on uh, Tom Steyer in Men's Journal. I'll put links to that with the show uh, at polyoptics.com. Joe, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics this week. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, if you happen to see the most beautiful girl that walked out on me, 
Tell her I'm sorry Tell her I need my baby Oh, won't you tell her 